0: The GIST is sponsored by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy to use interface, beautiful templates, and 24 7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, June 4th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I want to start off the show today by telling you about a government program that I bet you never heard of, especially if you're in my audience, which means listening to a podcast. It's something called Lifeline. The FCC sponsors it. And it was called Lifeline because it used to be about telephone lines, giving a telephone line to a poor person subsidizing telephone lines because in many cases, the people who qualify, severely poor people, had no other line to the outside world. Well now, it's 2015 and guess what? It's not a telephone line that's so important. It's broadband internet service. And there is a provision on the books to allow someone to spend a $9.50 subsidy on broadband service if it's already bundled with a telephone. But what about if someone like me, like maybe you, just wants broadband service? They don't want a telephone. Can they spend their $9.50 that the government will give them on broadband service to do things like maybe look for a job and get out of poverty or connect to the the outside world. A huge percentage of people who qualify for this service are disabled. Well, it seems like a kind of no-brainer. Sure, as with any government program, there's the old waste fraud and abuse. But guess what? Republicans on the FCC have vowed that they will not, they will not be extending the Lifeline Broadband Service. They are so worried about the waste Sure, it's been documented. A few million dollars are wasted. Some people get two. They pretend that they're poorer than they are. And they're so upset with this that they will not extend the service to the many millions of people who need it. So listen, this is what I'd have to say. And I want to make an analogy to the war in Iraq. You ready? I think there is a good case to be made that... Government subsidies are actually the enemy of getting people out of poverty. A lot of people, not the severely disabled, not the severely elderly. I mean, a lot of these people who qualify are elderly and past working age, right? There's a decent argument to that. But if you think that argument is true, that coddling people or giving them instead of making them work for it or denying them the joy of work and denying them the chance to believe in themselves and work, all that stuff. If you really believe in that, then you will not support these mean petty, small, cruel programs. Like denying $9 worth of broadband service to a person who needs it. Like the thing we were talking about in Kansas a few weeks ago where someone on welfare couldn't spend money at a swimming pool, couldn't withdraw more than $25 at a time. And how it relates to the war in Iraq is this. It was a bad, dumb war. And what it does is it undercuts the very rationale for such a war, which is we have to sometimes go to war when our lives might be at stake. So if you supported the war in Iraq based on that rationale, here you are looking at Iran. And maybe you think, you know, we might need to go to war in Iran. Well, the capacity and the appetite for the war in Iran has eroded in this country because of the stupid decision made to go to war in Iraq. Same justification. That's my analogy with Lifeline. If you believe that people need to find out about the power of work and that government handouts don't help people, do not support such pettiness as denying them the Lifeline program. You're only hurting your own cause. Good? Good. On the show today, we slam dunk, or do we? I'm going to hold that until the end. And in the spiel, debating about debates. But first, up, up, and away, and out, out of the studio as we go to the West Village and the hardball courts. The Year of the Dunk, A Modest Defiance of Gravity, actually will be the judge of that and we're judging it with Asher Price. We're here at the West Forth Courts, the legendary West Fourth Courts in New York City. Rick Tellender wrote the great book, Heaven is a Playground, I think was the name of it about uh, amateur basketball players. And by the way, have you been to West uh, Forth ever before? Have you played on West Forth, Asher? I was just remembering that as a kid, maybe I was
0: like a freshman in high school or so, My father work not far from here, and I came by here one afternoon to play in a game, and I was a slight skinny kid, and I just, what I remember most strongly was trying to post up on some dude. Some adult. Some adult. Some man. Exactly. <laughs> some man, and just the strength of his butt against my hip, and he just, you know, like a feather, just shoved me out of the way. and. Uh, and so I still, I still remember that yeah. kind of feel of
1: that moment of contact. Because people think tall and basketball is one of the most important things. It's really not. It's about your overall physicality. You have to have a lot of uh, stoutness if you want to rebound. And if you want to dunk, you have to have a lot more than height.
0: Yeah, you have to have strength in the legs, in the hips, in the butt. And, uh, and you've got to have some explosive, explosive ability.
1: So this, this book is a quest, and it's a quest for a lot of things, like to regain vitality and youth and defy gravity. Did basketball mean a lot to you? And the layered, or second part of that question is, did the dunking part of basketball mean a lot to you when you were younger?
0: I think dunking grabbed my attention when I was a kid. You know, I remember being about six years old, six or seven years old, and watching the 1986 dunk contest on TV. And as you may remember, that's the dunk contest contested Spud Webb won. He was five foot six inches, basically my height, a little bit taller. And I thought, holy cow, this guy, you know, is tiny and can get up in the air. And I felt like I could relate to him in, in the sense that he was just this little guy, and his name was Spud. Yeah. I think dunking is what really always kind of captured my imagination, is this fantastic, exciting, acrobatic move. And I remember growing up here in New York City being a Knicks fan, of course. I was in high school when John Starks had that famous dunk over Michael Jordan. It was like the single high point um, as being Nick's
1: fan during the time. He did the hand motion. He kind of shielded himself as he went up right in Jordan's face. It was, yeah, John Starks' career. Certainly not his uh, game six of the 94 finals wasn't his pinnacle. How tall are you now? I'm six-two and a half, and now I'm thirty-six years old. Yeah. So as you hit the height where dunking was plausible, the age started creeping up on you.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think we're 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 in competition with our age, really, more than anything else. And um, and so this struck me uh, in my mid-thirties as my last chance to try to dunk a basketball. I had never really tried. It was just something that you know I kind of fantasized about. I took it upon myself
1: this year to get into dunking shape to try to give it a shot. I was thinking as I read your book, dunking has this weird place, this unique place in sports because it's just one of many ways to score. And in fact, it's not the highest score you could get because a three-pointer is worth more than a dunk. No one's ever dunked from beyond the three-point arc thus resulting in a three-point dunk. That's the next phase. But it captures your imagination. It captures, like a home run captures your imagination. But A player can't always hit a home run. Certain guys always can dunk. And then, of course, it's become part of the vernacular. A home run's become part of vernacular, but there's no similar phrase in hockey, and there's no other phrase in basketball. And, you know, that's a slam dunk. Going to war was a slam dunk. It's just separated itself in a way that I don't think any other play in sports has.
0: Uh, I think whether it's here on the West 4th Street courts or at Madison Square Garden, when you dunk, it does a lot more than score two points. It gets... People riled up. It can uh, take something out of the opponent. Uh, you know, it gets fans going crazy. You know, you th- see Blake Griffin throw down a dunk and then the other team calls timeout. They need to collect themselves. And he's pumped after yeah. that. That's something else is kind of toying with in the book because, you know, in your mid 30s, you're wondering about a lot of things about yourself. And the dunk you know, provides a certain amount of certainty, if you're able to pull it off, it, it says something about yourself, I feel like, that you can, you, you have this talent that you can, that you can throw down.
1: And there's also, it's symbolically about the dunk, it's a shorthand, it's a shorthand for prowess. Now, if you meet a person and, and he says to you, yeah, I was a pretty good high school basketball player, or I played in high school, and you say, were you good, often they'll say, well, I could dunk, you know, and that's shorthand for, yeah, I was pretty good. <laughs>
0: I think it's, in some ways, the kind of thing I experiment with in the book is it is meant to be a stand-in about all kinds of things we wonder about ourselves, whether we, you know, my trying to dunk a basketball is also supposed to get at questions of whether you might have ever wondered about yourself, whether you could have been a good pianist or mathematician. And so, uh, you know, I don't know what the kind of sort of the math equivalent of saying when I was in high school I could dunk a basketball. but. But those are the questions that when we're in... calculus <laughs> yeah, blindfolded. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like when we're in our 30s or 40s, we start thinking, what talent did we leave on the table? What did we have kind of lurking in our bones that we never got around to? And so dunking is this, this thing I always wondered about, just as you might wonder about
1: those other things. Physically, with a phys- this, this manifests itself in many people of our age in a physical way, and what they do is a marathon, or something endurance-related, did you consider running a marathon? I think running is kind of
0: boring, personally, and it takes a long time. And, and uh, the beauty of the of the dunk is it's three quick steps in an explosion. It's also, there's empirical finality to it. Either you can do it or you can't. Running a marathon, I mean, I suppose you could set yourself some time limit or something like that. But, you know, you could take five hours to run a marathon and uh, and complete it. But it doesn't have the same kind of kind of thrill or excitement or finality is is dunking a basketball.
1: Marathons are bad for you also and uh, people say, well, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Good thing about a dunk is it's a sprint. You got to sprint during it.
0: The other thing about the dunk is that it's uniquely American. I mean, basketball is an American sport and the dunk is a very American maneuver about rising above your lot and upward mobility. And the marathon, let's face it, it's a Greek thing originally. Uh, and so that, that just didn't have the luster for me is, is dunking the ball.
1: It's rebellious. You know, they tried to ban the dunk. And the guys who were great at the dunk were guys who, you know, Dr. J or even, of course, they tried to ban it with Wilt. Guys who were transgressors, guys who the traditionalists said weren't playing it. Now, I think all of that mindset is gone. And also the dunk does have a bit of the ego, too. It. it does have a bit of the look at me. And that's American. But it also, I think, is more affirmative than one of these endurance sports. Oh. Completely. I mean, I, I,
0: that's right, they banned the dunk for 10 years in the college game when Luau Cinder, uh, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, started taking over. And, um, and so the dunk for a while was a kind of underground piece of entertainment. And I think it's still what really thrills fans more than anything, but it's now more about style in a way than defiance, you know, which gets at all kinds of other issues in the NBA uh, and in college ball about race and,
1: and, and basketball. All right, let's talk about kinesiology and actually how you trained your calves and who you consulted with and how you tried to do this. I had kind
0: of two top uh, trainers that were, were helping me out. One was a, a, a group at the Hospital for Special Surgery here in New York. A group? A whole group. <laughs> there were two or three people there who were really kind of putting me through the paces. And at the start of the whole project, they put me through a test called a functional movement screen to test my flexibility and my my potential. Yes. And I was completely pathetic. Uh-huh. I think I basically failed the test. Well, it's not pass fail, except in your case. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, you have to be able to have some flexibility to really do some of the weightlifting exercises, the squats and so on, that are really going to get you into dunking shape. So, and the other person I had training me was a gold medal winning high jumper who lives down in the Austin area, a guy named Charles Austin, who won the 1996 high jump in the Olympics. He's still the world record holder. And uh, I would go down to his gym uh, a couple times a week and he would have me do things like get on the high jump mat, which is basically like a waterbed, and just jump in place for a minute like a crazy man. And you want to collapse basically after that, but instead he you know, would give me a few seconds to towel off, I was sweating like a, like a mad
1: thing, and, uh, and do it again. Was putting all the effort required in, was that hard? Were you very effortful? I actually hated it. I
0: would work out a couple hours a day. You know, I was, I was careful to, you know, work on legs Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays and abs and arms on the other days. Because uh, when, you, when you try to dunk a basketball, it's not just, you need to improve your core strength as well. So I would diligently, you know, work out. And then on the weekends, I'd play some pickup ball or pickup soccer. And I got very careful about not jogging at all because I didn't want to build up any slow twitch muscles. I wanted only to do explosive things. So I would, you know, do sprints as well, just short, you know, 50-meter sprints. Because again, at the end of the day, the dunk
1: is just three or four steps in just rising up and throwing the ball down. So everyone is efforting to try to get you to dunk. In the beginning, you can touch rim. Do you see? A first knuckle, a second knuckle emerging over the rim, what are you seeing?
0: Oh yeah, I mean while I'm going, you know, it 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 starts with you know being able to kind of move your hand up and up and then you you know you you dunk a tennis ball. Yeah. Charles Austin at one point had me dunk like a dodgeball. And meanwhile I'm doing like fingertip push-ups to improve my grip strength, because my hands are kind of small. Could you palm a ball before? Uh, no, I couldn't palm a ball before, but, you know, during the process of this, I, I was able to palm a ball. Um, so I, I won't give away what what happens after that point, but I can say that, you know, I got higher than I ever thought possible, and, and you know, one of the kind of takeaways is that you, you're able to defy expectations in, in a way that you don't think possible as you become a more earthbound human being into your into your 30s and
1: 40s and so on. Look, Asher, we're here at the West Fourth Courts, and, you know, it's a great place to do an interview, but there are rims, they are a regulation 10 feet off the ground, and I'm going to ask you, here, the book will still have its drama because we could say, If you can't do it, maybe you could at the time the book was done, if you can do it. And what is doing it? You know, you're not in your great shoes. You're wearing brown socks, not the right socks. But I'm going to chat. I will will narrate this. If you want to give it a go and see how your hand and a ball interacts with that rim above us, what do you say?
0: I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm happy to run up and give something a shot, either with a little ball or just to just to see if I can if I still have it in me to, to touch room I ha, I ha, I'm I i going to give one more excuse here I haven't been the moment my year of working out ended I cancelled my gym membership because I, I hated that much stuff so much so I've become more slothful and, and, uh, and so I'm both happy to give give a, a a tennis ball or just you know just rise up with my hand and give it a shot if you I like I think by the
1: way that's exactly what Sean Kemp did when he left the NBA yeah I think of myself pretty as the right second before. coming of the Rain Man pretty much all right What about one of these guys playing handball? Can we ask to borrow a ball? So there was a dude named Marty, we found out later, who was playing handball, and we asked him really, really nicely, can we borrow your handball in the name of science and radio? Yeah, we just needed it for uh, 10 seconds. And we're going to give a little disclaimer here, because I think it's fair to Asher. One, he wrote the book a while ago, so he's out of top dunk form. Two, I'm not going to reveal if he really dunks, because that's the, the, the crux of the book and three, dunking's hard. No one, no one, and I'm just,
0: I'm, I'm hoping the rim isn't, you know, any even centimeter over 10 feet.
1: It looks like the court kinda dips down. I don't know if it's a great court for it, but we're gonna try it. Here he is, he's a few feet from the top of the key. Asher Price, in his first attempt, he's holding the ball in his left hand. He's approaching from the left side. He's up! Oh, and the ball grazes his rim. Would you like one more try? He's going to give it one more try. One more try. We tell him Marty to lend us the ball. He's not looking that happy. We're cutting into his game. There were a couple more tries. I mean, he came a lot closer than I did. I mean, maybe he dunked. I don't want to say he didn't dunk. Although, think about it from my perspective. If he gloriously put that handball through the rim, I mean, that would make for good radio, right? Anyway, anyway, see the disclaimer of before. It's not his fault. It's hard to dunk. Maybe he did dunk, though. But it's really hard to dunk. Asher Price, author of The Year of the Dunk, A Modest Defiance of Gravity. We won't tell you the book ends. I think that's a good teaser because now after the year of the dunk and after the canceled gym membership, he can almost dunk. And we also want to thank Marty who gave us his handball. Thanks, man. I think Marty's the real hero of this book. So Daryl Dawkins, who was said to come from Planet Lovetron, used to name his dunks, and that's great in 70s style, dunkatronic and funkadelic and so forth. It's very throwback, but some things you don't want to be throwback. Some things you will throw back if they're too throwback. I'm thinking about websites. I'm thinking about websites that flash at you and look like... Uh, A Nintendo video game. I remember one basketball one where the guy always hit the shot from the corner if you knew just how to take off. But with Squarespace, sites look professionally designed regardless of the skill level of you, the designer. There's no coding required. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools and state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. Unlike the baskets. That Daryl Dawkins destroyed. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. The cost starts at $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code just to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now the spiel, it's debatable. The first Republican debate will be in nine weeks. It will feature 10 candidates and it will weed out some people who are world famous in the states of South Carolina or Louisiana or in the cafeteria of Hewlett Packard 10 years ago. Rick Santorum doesn't like the rules even though clearly he would be included in the debates. So really, it's impressive because he's not advancing his own self-interest. He's just standing up for what he thinks is right. Oh wait, hold on, I've been told he wouldn't be included in the debates. He is speaking entirely of self-interest. When he says, if you're a United States Senator, If you're a governor, if you're a woman who ran a Fortune 500 company, then you should have the right to be on stage. Now, clearly, in that quote that I just relayed to you, when Santorum was saying is, his meaning of is, is, was, because it's not true that he is a U.S. senator. He was a U.S. senator. Lindsey Graham is a U.S. senator. There's no way that Rick Santorum is saying Lindsey Graham deserves to be on the stage, and I don't. I mean, Lindsey Graham is a man who is polling at half the percent That Rick Santorum is, that's right, latest CNN poll, Rick Santorum, 2%, Lindsey Graham, 1%. But what about this thing? If you're a governor, if you're a Fortune 500 company running woman, if you're a senator, here are the numbers. There are 173 living former senators, and of course, 100 current senators, 273 people who deserve to be on that stage by the Santorum numbers, 237 living governors, all right? How many... Women who've run a Fortune 500 company? Well, the first one was Catherine Graham in 1972. There are currently 26. I'm just saying it's a lot smaller number. It's a lot harder for those Fortune 500 company running ladies to get on the stage. Also, upset with this, is some guy named George Pataki? I have no idea why they'd be quoting a gentleman named George Pataki. Or even his spokesman, and why would someone named George Pataki have a spokesman who pointed out that Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and probably Abraham Lincoln would have been barred from the stage given that criteria? Really what's going on, to quote Florida GOP strategist Rick Wilson, is the, quote, Donald Trump problem, an entirely unserious candidate, but one with serious name ID. I understand if you're trailing, you want to be in the debates, even though it's true that just being in the debates won't mean you'll win. I can't see a path to winning for anyone who's not in the debates. Then again, I can't really see a path to winning for anyone who at the time of those debates in nine weeks is polling at the 2% that would put you out of the top 10 candidates. But getting into the debates seems to be this huge thing. People give it way too much credit. There is a group called Level the Playing Field that is decrying the rule for keeping third parties and independent candidates from a future presidential debate. But again, low polling, because the standard for them is you have to be polling at 15%. Such low polling candidates probably won't go or most definitely won't go anywhere in the polls with or without debates. We put way too much credence in the power of a debate. Just a couple of facts. You know who won all those Democratic debates in 2004? Wasn't Hillary Clinton, wasn't Barack Obama, Joe Biden was the winner of those debates. He never got above single digits in the polls. And you know who else was said to be a great debater? Well, here. Here is Michael Moore touting General Wesley Clark. Remember this when Clark entered the race in 2000? And his number one skill, as touted by Michael Moore, was well, listen. We have been handed a gift, a four star general head of his class at West Point, Rhodes Scholar, captain of the debate team.
0: And I know, you're thinking what I'm thinking, right? I want to see that debate! I want to see that debate! Oh yeah! I want to see that debate!
1: (laughs) Oh boy! So I wanted to talk about Michael Moore, failed political prognosticator, and General Wesley Clark for a couple of reasons. One, as I've been saying, debates mean very little. Being a debate champion doesn't mean you'll win a debate in the eyes of the American people. Doesn't mean you'll get to a debate. But most importantly, whatever you do in a debate, often little to do with how you do in an election. But let's talk about Wesley Clark for a second. What's this guy been doing? Came across this article in Bloomberg Businessweek, the general of penny stocks, subhead. Wesley Clark lends his name to some sketchy companies. How can Business Week say that? Well, they detail one called the Grilled Cheese Truck. And it's not just that. You have a four-star general who won the war in Kosovo without a casualty, endorsing and on the board of directors of the Grilled Cheese Truck, asking you to, quote, join the Grilled Cheese Truck Revolution. By the way, shouldn't he be oppressing the revolution? I will also quote from how they spell revolution in the video. R-E-V-O-U-L-T-I-O-N, revolution. Is that right? I don't think that's right. Anyway, I'm not that good a speller, but he's not that good an investor because Wesley Clark has joined the boards of at least 18 public companies and 10 of them are penny stock outfits. All but one of those 10 lost value during Clark's tenure. Only four of the 31,000 people in Bloomberg's database of over-the-counter board members have served on more boards than Clark. And they quote a guy who's an expert in penny stocks and such things. He says, Wesley Clark's appearance on a board is a huge red flag. Would this guy have won the debate? I don't know. If grilled cheese was involved, he probably would have lost. So in summation, don't worry about getting into the debates. Do worry if you're investing in a cheese company endorsed by Wesley Clark. Today's show is produced by Andrea Salenzi, who admits that she has joined the BLT insurrection. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. He is involved in the meatball sub-mutiny of 72. Andy Bowers, the executive producer, was deeply involved in the Monte Cristo popular insurgents that swept parts of Guam in the 80s. We have a Facebook site. It is facebook.com slash slategist. We also have a Twitter feed. The other day I mentioned the Twitter feed, and we went over the 4,000 mark. This is but a small fraction of the people who not only listen to The Gist, but go on Twitter. Someone tweeted to me, Why follow The Gist's Twitter page if I just follow you? Don't punish me. I give some love to The Gist. If you can, do us a solid follow The Gist's Twitter feed. Right, Andrea?
0: Yeah, and for a limited time only, we will follow you back.
1: All right, all right. For the next 24 hours, from the time this show posts... To the, until we grow tired with that, the gist will follow you back. You'll get some followers. Is that Twitter kosher?
0: I feel like if Tay Diggs does it, we can do it.
1: Okay, we do have one caveat. We will not follow back Tay Diggs. Screw that guy. That guy's a Twitter slut. Thanks for listening. Although
0: we would like but, to book him soon. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, Tay, if you're listening, we're just getting. We love your work, Hedwig, Angry Inch. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey, this is David Wallace-Wells of New York Magazine's Sex Lives. I'm here with...
1: Maureen O'Connor. Allison Davis.
0: And this week we're going to be talking about... Allison, what are we going to be talking about?
1: Uh, My new favorite movie, Chocolate City, The Black Magic Mike.
0: We're also going to be talking about uh, ball touching.
1: (laughs) And the panty clearinghouse, SellYourPanties.com.
0: Subscribe at iTunes.com slash Panoply.